With that song is sort of a perfect segue into our sermon text, which um, starts off with these words from the Lord himself. I have loved you. I have loved you. So let's pray again before we look into God's word this morning. Indeed, Father, we are in deep gratitude for your deep love for us, a love that was vast beyond all measure. It is a love that is so high and so deep and so wide and so long. Help us today to truly comprehend that love. And as Paul prayed, to know the love that surpasses knowledge so that we might be filled with your fullness and that Christ might dwell in our hearts. And then we pray that the comprehension of your love might help us respond with nothing less than honor and glory and blessing, as we have sung this morning. And so we pray these things, and we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure all of us have experienced in our lives uh, times of farewell, times when either we're going away or someone we love is going away on a trip of some kind. Uh, Those scenes sometimes play out at an airport. Sometimes they play out beside uh, a car. Maybe it's a a child who has graduated from high school and is going a far distance away to, to school, or a parent who's going on a long business trip. Or maybe it's a whole family that's going away as missionaries, as we are going to experience here in our church in a short little while. Whenever that happens, whether we're the ones going away or whether we are the ones that are staying, we want those last words to be meaningful. And so they usually include some kind of an affirmation of love. We want our loved ones to remember, we want them to... That's the last thing that they hear, to know that we love them. Well, we're going to start a series today on the last words, the farewell words, we could put it, in the last book of the Old Testament. The words that end that bigger half, the first half of our Bibles. If you just uh, find Malachi and page through those words in the last book of the Old Testament, it's easy to miss the impact of those last words. If you have a Bible like mine, you finish Malachi and you turn the page, and unless you have some sort of a study Bible or something like that, the next page you turn to is the Gospel of Matthew. It's like there's no break there. It just goes from one to the next. But we have to realize that when we flip from Malachi to Matthew, we are skipping 450 years of history. And since we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that means that there were 450 years when God was silent. 450 years when people did not hear from God. As God's people today, we know that God's Word is readily available to us. We can hear from God whenever we want just by opening our Bibles. Even on our little devices, which most people always seem to have with them these days, it's always there, it's always accessible to us. But this is 450 years of silence that is about to happen. 
We have trouble sort of comprehending that. And I'm going to read from Malachi right away, but imagine me telling you that after I read Malachi in a few minutes, I'm going to close the book, and you all have to close your books, and you're not going to hear the Word of God again for another 450 years until the year 2469. That would make you pay attention to what God is going to say, or at least we would hope so if we really value God's words. People, of course, back then didn't know that God was going to be silent for that long, although there were some prophecies to that effect. But if they had known, they would have paid attention. And it might be good to think of Malachi that way. It would help us to see the impact of these last words in the New Testament. The problem, as we'll soon see, is that the people of God back then really did not care. They didn't value God's words. They didn't treat God's words with any reverence or respect. And that's exactly the issue that, he, that God takes up with them through the prophet Malachi. They did not care. It was evident in their attitude. It was evident in their priorities. It was evident in their loyalties. It was evident in their pride and in their arrogance and in their sense of entitlement. It was evident in their worship. They didn't care. That's kind of the occasion for these important last words of the Old Testament. As God's people today, we should pay attention to these words just to make sure, if nothing else, that we learn the lesson and that we don't fall prey to the same attitude of these people. But the other reason we should pay attention to these last words of God for 450 years is that when God does speak again, he does it the next time not through a prophet, but through an angel, the angel Gabriel, who announces the birth of Jesus. Those were the very next words that the people would hear, people that were alive in that day. And so as we walk through these hard prophecies of judgment, we'll also notice that it looks ahead to a time when God will not just speak, but when God will come in the person of his Son, the living word, Jesus Christ. So if you just peek over to chapter 3 of Malachi, verse 1, it says there, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of And so Malachi comes not just with warning, but that warning brings with it a heightened sense of anticipation, a heightened sense of looking for someone who will come and who will rescue his people from their sin. But for now, let's give attention to God's farewell words here about 450 years before Christ. My plan is sort of to be in Malachi until the end of November. I'm starting to read Malachi and I'm going, I might take a break for Christmas and go back in January again. Uh, It might take a little longer than I thought, but we'll see. I might end up the end of November and I really want it to end there because then we would have a week of silence and then go right to the birth of our Lord. Aren't you glad we're not going to be silent that it's only going to be a week and it's not that long, 450 years. But my hope is that by the time we get done in Malachi, um, we would have that same longing as Malachi tried to um, anticipate there, we'll be found longing for Christ. 
What would God say in his last Old Testament words? Well, before he gives the warning, which is what takes up most of Malachi, he says something similar to what we would say as we leave or as we bid farewell to someone on that plane. He gives them an affirmation, a reassurance of his love. God tells Malachi to speak a hard and in-your-face last word. It's a hard word, though, that's not separated from his love. It's a hard word that's wrapped in love. In fact, it's a hard word because of his love. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines those he loves. God loves his people too much to let them keep wandering off into sin. And to, in this case, allow them to disregard his words. And to let them become indifferent and irreverent and bored and lax in their worship. When we wander away from God, and we do often, we should be glad that God cares enough to lovingly correct us and to steer us back onto the path of godliness. And here God's going to express his love by way of rebuke. So notice God's very first words in Malachi. After the introduction there in chapter chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. What a great way to start. That's how this book starts. God wants his people to know that he has loved them and he will always love them, even though he's about to rebuke them for not returning his love. That's the issue. He loves them, but they are not returning his love. In his love, God is calling his people to return to him. That's why he wants to strike this initial note. And so it might be helpful to get some quick background about Israel during Malachi's time. What's going on here at the end of the Old Testament? And so here's kind of a quick drive-by history. We need to go way back to Deuteronomy 27 to 30, back to the time just before Moses died. And in there... If you, read, if you want to read all of that this afternoon, it's a good portion to read, sort of Moses' last words. But God there lays out in detail how God's people would be blessed if they kept God's covenant and how they would be cursed on the other side if they didn't. And in there you'll find that God's list of curses are way longer than his list of, list of blessings. It seems like he knew that they wouldn't be able to obey him, and that's indeed the case. And I just want to read a little bit right at the end of that section in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 to verse 18. There's Moses talking to the, it's kind of his last sermon almost, to the congregation. He says, see, it's a congregation of like six million So there's a lot of people there. But he says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But... If, he turns your, if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. The people couldn't do it. 
their hearts did, in fact, turn away. And so, God sent prophets all through Israel's history, kept on sending them with his word, basically always calling them back to these very words. Calling them back to these words there in Deuteronomy 27 to 30. But for the most part, with a few exceptions, they refused to listen. And eventually, God did what he promised there that he would do. He split up the nation, and eventually, both sides, the northern side and the southern side, were exiled out of the land. But then, God graciously brought some people back to a united Israel again. Smaller borders, but it was a united Israel under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, now we might think that was a new beginning for them, but it wasn't. The Israel, after the return from exile, was a shadow of its former glory. The land had been ravaged, hadn't been fixed up yet. Their capital, Jerusalem, was a mess. They had tried to rebuild the temple, but it was a poor facsimile of of what the splendor of Solomon's temple was. The people were poor and destitute, and that made them discouraged about God's promises for the future. And that disillusionment led them to eventually be careless about their worship. And that's where we find ourselves when we get to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. So in some ways, we can understand how they responded to God's affirmation of his love there in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Look at us. Look where we are. Look what's happened to us. How have you loved us? Their circumstances were so bad that they had come to the place where they doubted God's love. From their vantage point, God had abandoned them. But God responds by reminding them that God has set his love specifically on them. And he actually says, specifically on them and not on others. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Goes back to the story from Genesis of the two twins. Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger. By rights, the older son would get the birthright. But God chose the younger. There's a lot more that could be said about that. But God is reminding his people here that he specifically loved them. Even though they did nothing to deserve that love. It was by God's sovereign choice and in God's sovereign love that he chose Jacob and the people of Jacob rather than Esau and the people of Esau, which would become Edom. He's emphasizing the fact that in spite of their great sin, his love causes him to choose them and at the same time reject and exclude others. And the point is that God is highlighting his specific love for his people. They did nothing, like I said, to earn his love and even their great and heinous acts of spurning his love, which we will now get into, will not cause God to turn back on his loving them. Even though they will face his white-hot anger and discipline, he will not finally reject those that he has set his love on. should be a great comfort to us who belong to Christ. We need always to be reminded that God loves us. In places like Ephesians 1, you see that God has loved you from eternity past. Before you were born, before you could not yet even try to do anything to earn his love. 
And then Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated He displays His love in that even while we were yet sinners, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And then as Pastor Andrew read from Romans 8, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he lists a whole bunch of things. He says not even death can do that. God loves us from before our beginning right to the very end. This is the great privilege of being a child of God. Let us not forget that. These are God's first words to his people through Malachi. He affirms his love for his people. And all of that is wonderfully reassuring and wonderfully true. Yet, as God's people, we have to reckon with our sin. We have to reckon with our remaining sin. This is the great conundrum for us as believers. We've been amazingly saved from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin by God's grace through faith, yet we still sin. We sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch. When, when, when he wrote that, John Newton might have been talking about his former life. He was a wretched slave owner who was amazingly saved. But he also might have seen his remaining wretchedness. He's speaking in the present tense. Saved a wretch like I still am. We are amazed that God would save a wretch such as we still are, even though redeemed. Did you notice that word showed up again in our last song we sang before I came up? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son and make a wretch His treasure. Even the word sounds ugly, doesn't it? Our sin was ugly. Our remaining sin is ugly. God has given us all these privileges as His people. He has loved us. He has redeemed us. But we still live in the muck of remaining sin. And we have to be reminded that our sins are offenses against God. We do not honor God as God. We do not fear God as God. And so God reminds His people through the prophet Malachi that when we hear God's words of rebuke, when God makes us aware of our sins, when He exposes our sins, we should see that as God's kindness to us for exposing our sins. It helps us examine ourselves. It helps us get to that place where we know that we need to repent. Romans 2 says, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And in Malachi, God points out Israel's sins. This is the unmistakable message of Malachi. Even as Malachi protests and questions God's accusations, or as the people of God, sorry, uh, protest Malachi's questions and accusations through God. So let's look at the rest of chapter 1 of Malachi, in verses 6 to 14. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, this is God speaking, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. And by the way, every time you see Lord of hosts in the Bible, that, that pictures God as a warrior. I mentioned that before. It's the image there. O priests who 
Let me just go back to the beginning of that sentence. If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one of you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So the gist of the issue is up there in verse 6. The problem isn't that God doesn't love them. He does. The problem is that they don't love God. They don't treat God as the one who loved them with a massive, undeserving, gracious love. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? And God particularly targets the priests. And what's going on in and around the temple? Polluted food on the Lord's table. Second-rate sacrifices. It's the priests that are the targets of God's accusation and rebuke. This is an issue of worship. Worship that had become commonplace. Done by people that had become bored and apathetic with an attitude of entitlement and disdain. Rather than hear the accusation, they felt like they had a right to make God prove it. You see that cycle over and over again in Malachi. God makes an accusation, and he puts their words to voice, he says, or their attitudes to voice, and they come back with a but and a how. See that in verse 6 and 7? Sounds like a lot like our day, isn't it? We live in an age of entitlement. And, and an age of disdain for authority. Uh, we're kind of like a young child who gets caught red-handed and stealing candy, right? They got the candy in their hands and you say, you stole candy. And they go, what? What did I do, right? You have to prove it to them. <laughs> but here it's much more serious. This is the creator God, holy, perfect. And these are his people and the issue is worship. God wanted the worship of his people to match his character. He wanted the worship of his people to 
be holy, to be perfect, and therefore done with an attitude of honor and reverence and respect. And so God goes after the priests. You might wonder, how could this happen? How did it get to this point? These were the people, the priests that God had specially set apart, people that he had outfitted from head to toe to reflect his beauty and his perfection. They, they even wore a turban on their head that had written across the front of it, Holy to the Lord. And their sacrifices were supposed to be the very best of the very best. Again, to reflect the perfections and excellencies of God. Yet, here they are. These are the priests of God. They despise his name and offer polluted food on his altar. They're just going through the motions in worship. They're doing something, kind of performing the rituals, but only as much as they had to. And so God is laying all that second-rate stuff before them, kind of going, here it is. Saying, look at this stuff. Am I supposed to accept that? End of verse 8. You could offer that to a secular, godless leader, and, and they wouldn't even accept those offerings. And here you are, presenting that and asking the Lord God to accept it. Look at it. Do you really want me to accept that? And God answers his own question there in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you that would shut the doors, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I'd rather you shut the doors to the place, God says. Shut the place down. Look at the end of verse 10. I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. And then he says in verse 11, which is repeated again in verse 14, God gives a peek into the future and a peek into true worship that will extend to all the nations. He's saying, I will be worshipped. You are despising my name, but my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. It's picturing the worship of God in heaven. Brother and sister Christians, here we have a challenge in our day to take inventory of our worship. God is laying our worship, and especially our attitude in worship, out before us. And he's asking us to really think about what our worship says about our attitude toward God. Do we, as God's people, as God's church, going back to verse 6, really honor God as being our Holy Father? And do we really fear God as being our Master and our Lord? What place does worship have in your Christianity? What kind of care are you taking to honor God and to fear God? How does your life show that the worship of God is a priority for you? Now you say, this is talking to the priests. not talking about us down here in the pew. And yes, definitely this rebuke lands squarely at the feet of the leaders. They, we, we bear this responsibility. But part of the beauty of who we are in Christ, all of us, is that we are now all priests. Did you know that? You are a Christian. You have been outfitted with the righteousness of Christ. You have been set apart as holy. Remember, we just studied 1 Peter. Remember 1 Peter 2, verse 5? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That sounds like the same language. Look at verse 13 back in Malachi 1. This really unsurfaces and uproots the attitude that lies behind their 
their, their pitiful and their bottom-of-the-barrel worship. Here's what's at the bottom of it. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. Frankly, they're bored with worship. They're bored. What a weariness this is. It just makes me tired. I'll do it if I have to, I guess. It had become a monotonous, drudging kind of worship. Worship had become trivial. They were uninterested and apathetic. And they just sort of literally blow it off. They snort at it. Today we might, then they might say, meh, whatever. And to that, God says, let's just shut the doors. And rather than accept the offering, he curses it. Interesting, actually, if you go to 70 A.D. and the destruction of the Jer- Jerusalem, God does shut the doors to the temple. For the Jewish people, there is no more temple. The point, do not worship God casually. Do not treat God trivially. Do not worship God grudgingly and apathetically. We could add pathetically. God's people need to continually evaluate their worship and to take inventory of the attitude behind their sacrifices. How do you worship? At Wetaskiwin Mission Church, how do we worship? This is not a call for outward expressions of excitement and singing or some kind of a higher experience. This is a call to take inventory of our attitude. What kind of attitude are we bringing to God? How are we returning God's particular and specific love for us in our worship? For our scripture reading this morning, I connected Romans 8 to Romans 12, but you you don't even need to go back that far. Just go back to um, immediately before that verse in Romans 12 to Romans 11. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How unscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is worship. Chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Here's the language again. What is good and acceptable and perfect. When you take inventory of your attitude in worship, and if you then feel a need to repent and to reform your attitude, start by meditating on how God has loved you. Graciously, lavishly, generously, faithfully. And then I would just encourage all of us, me included, to take some practical steps in altering our attitude as we prepare for and as we participate in the public worship of God's people. It might include things like this. Some suggestions. Filling your week with times of personal and family worship. Filling your week with a healthy appetite of God's word. Reading the sermon passage on Saturday. I think we now start to put the passage up there on Saturday on Facebook, if you're on Facebook. Or usually we just preach through one text, so it's easy to follow until we get to a new one. So no one probably knew that I was going to Malachi this week. But you have an opportunity to do that. Read the sermon passage. Come prepared. Um, read it through and come expectant. Get to bed early on Saturday. 
Might be digging in a little bit here. Come with a sense of expectancy rather than out of a sense of duty. When you arrive on Sunday, find a way to encourage someone or to serve someone. During the service, listen to the call to worship at the beginning. This is not just like uh, an announcement that says the service is starting in five minutes. Apply the call to worship to yourself and say, Yes, Lord, I come. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making it possible that I could come into your presence. As we sing, be engaged. Note the words of the songs and then sing them. Sing them to one another, Ephesians tells us, and to God. During scripture reading, hear the words as coming from God himself. This is God speaking. It's a time of gravitas. Look for connections to the sermon passage. We always try to connect the scripture reading to the, the passage. Sometimes we, if we're preaching out of the New Testament, here's the secret. Here's how we decide on the, the, the scripture reading. Then we do the scripture reading from the Old Testament. If the sermon is from the Old Testament, we do a scripture reading that's connected some way from the New Testament, generally. Look for those connections. During the prayer, agree with the prayer. During the offering, thank God for his grace and for the opportunity to respond generously. During the sermon, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see how you can apply these truths to your own life for your sanctification. It's just some suggestions. But remember, it's all about your attitude. It's all about your heart. I remember when I was a child, sit through church, we had a big clock right at the back of the church, and that clock had way more of my attention than whatever was going on in the front. But I praise God that at some point in there, he changed my heart. Where at one point, all of a sudden it happened. I couldn't wait to go to church. I started to, to eat it all up. Loved every part of it. And I wish I could say it stayed that way. But I confess to my shame that I had Sundays, even had seasons of Sundays, even as a pastor, where it hasn't always been that way. Friends, let's be encouraged and warned and transformed by this passage. I encourage you to use this as an opportunity to really think about your attitude toward God, your heart from God, your worship of God. Ask God to conform your heart to Christ's, to be transformed by God's covenant love expressed most gloriously, how? In the coming and dying and rising of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to then respond with the highest honor, the highest respect, the highest reverence, the greatest sense of reverent fear. This is the kind of worship in which God does take pleasure. Let's bow in prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your great love with which you loved us. Father, you are indeed rich in mercy. You are abounding in love and grace and faithfulness. We thank you for helping us see this morning how, how fickle our hearts often are. Too often we fail to take your glory and your holiness seriously enough. Forgive us, we pray. And then help us to give you the honor 
and the fear that is due your name. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.